Today's video was recorded on November 8, 2022. In this week's lesson, we look at the golden calf incident that's found in Exodus 32. And the question we're going to ask is, why is the worship of an idol the sin that Exodus shows us? Now, besides the answer that because it happened, well, we really want to look at what the sin of idol worship says about us as human beings and what God will forgive. So how easy is it for any of us to take our eyes off of God and place our faith in a false idol, thinking that it can deliver us? Well, it turns out it's pretty easy, and I think that's what Exodus is telling us. So we'll look at questions like, why do human beings create gods? What are we looking for when we create a god or a false idol? And then we're going to look at the biblical solution. What does our God, the God of the Bible, what does he want us to do? Why does God emphasize the fact that we need to maintain him as our object of worship? So we'll try to answer these questions and more as we explore this very famous scene in Exodus. Now, if you haven't already subscribed to our channel, make sure you click that subscribe button below. And that way you can keep up with our channel and never miss a biblical lesson. And if you happen to be listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, be sure to follow our channel and make sure you set it to automatically download each episode so you know you'll have them wherever you go. We hope you enjoy this lesson on the sin of the golden calf and how it can help us understand ourselves and the importance of keeping our focus on God. We have three lessons to go till the end of Exodus. So we have tonight, part 28. Then we're going to do next week. It's still, it's going to be somewhat of a review, and then I'll try to weave. I'm not sure what I'm going to do. There's, there will be something. And then the final week, right after Thanksgiving, will be our final lesson on Exodus. And what I want to do in that lesson is weave in the holidays and Pentecost. To then come forward and say, what's going on with the Pentecost with Jesus and the deliverance of the Holy Spirit, just like the Torah is being delivered on Mount Sinai. And then we'll take a break for December and starting up second week of January or so, second or third week of January, we'll kick off a series on the biblical holidays doing the entire basket of holidays. Since I have a few videos up and I've been asked many times, do we have a comprehensive series on the holiday? So that would be starting next year. So we'll end with a holiday one. We'll begin with a holiday one or and begin the next year with a holiday. Okay. So the golden calf. Now here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the episode of the golden calf. I'm not going to try to go through all the details in Exodus. There's a lot in there. What I mainly want to talk about are false gods or false idols or the worship of an idol. Why is it? It's a way to approach scripture by asking questions and tough questions. God can handle tough questions to say, why is this the sin that shows up? And, and we'll look at that tonight. Why is, it the, why is it the worship of an idol or a replacement of God? And I'm going to suggest that this is the easiest trap for humanity to fall into, even those who are in relationship with God. 
is the worship of a false god or a false idol, to put something in the place of God. At a moment, a crisis moment, that's what they're in. So we're not going to talk so much about the chapter in Exodus, but the idea of a false god. And then what's our problem with humanity? Why do we keep falling into this trap of putting up false idols? Okay, so this is, as I mentioned, I think, part 28 of our series. And the, you know, I had no problem finding a painting for the background here. The golden calf is one of the, you'll find a ton of paintings. Artists, of course, love painting this one. And this one, Nicholas Poussin, 1634, around 1634, the adoration of the golden calf. And of course, once the Israelites, once their anxiety went down and they felt like they had a God again, now they have a party and they're all smiles and laughter. That's what's going on in that story. So we will be, if you want to open your Bible to Exodus 32, we're only going to read one verse. But this is where it happens. Exodus 32 is the golden calf. We'll start out, of course, with a review. How did we get to this golden calf business? And it's so unfortunate when we read the book of Exodus, we're so close to what we're reading and all of the details that we forget to stand back. And what we've looked over the past four and five weeks is that structure that's found in Exodus 25 to 40, those final 15 chapters. And that's what we want to see. It's very difficult to see in English. But, you know, anytime you're reading the Bible and you see chapters repeating, that should be the signal in your head. Ah, there might be a chiastic structure going on here. Why are they repeating things? So we talked about this idea of the structure in the final 15 chapters of Exodus called a chiastic structure or a chiasm. The chiasm is based off the Greek letter X. And so what you get is one half of the X kind of makes an arrow. And then Everything on the top part of the chiastic structure matches in some way with the bottom. So you start with the presence of God and you end with the presence of God. You get God giving the commands for the tabernacles. Then Moses gives the command for the tabernacle. Then it's, you know, God giving the instructions for the Sabbath, Moses giving the instructions. And this all drives in until you get to the center point, which is the important turning point. So we want to look. That's where. As Christians, when we go to this latter half of Exodus, this is where we want to focus. These are two events that are going to flip everything, and eventually you end with the presence of God with the people. That's what God wants to happen. So if we take those away and we zoom in a little bit, what do we get? Well, this is what we've been talking about the past few weeks. Now, I did them out of order, right? I started with the divine attributes. So we spent a couple weeks looking at the divine attributes. And part of the reason I, I did that was when we get to the golden calf, we have to understand what kind of God it is we're following. A patient God, a God who's compassionate, merciful, like, a, like he has mercy towards us, like a mother has towards the child that came out of her womb. And he understands all of the problems that we're going to struggle with. So many of the commandments are there to help us rise above those so that we don't get caught up in them. 
So right here, we've got these two pieces. So I started with the divine attributes so that when we go back to the golden calf and you realize we have a God who wants, he desires to forgive us. And last week we looked at those, we'll review in a minute, we looked at those three different words for sin. And they basically, scholars say, it's like he puts the whole scope of, of all the different kinds of sin out there. There's nothing that God can't forgive if you turn back to him and confess and go back into the relationship. God accepts you back into the relationship. So we did that divine attributes. Today we'll look then where am I? Oh, we'll look then tonight the golden calf. So again, I think the way that Exodus is set up, the structure points us to something important about the sin of the golden calf. That's what we want to look at. And again, as I suggested, it's this type of sin, turning our sights from God to an idol or a false god, that is the most common sin. And I want to, I don't want this to be a sermon, but I want to bring it up into our own day to say, what are the false gods that we turn to even as Christians? Where do we place our faith instead of God? And so this seems to be what Exodus is telling us, or at least where Exodus wants us to focus. So this is a big deal, of course, because what's going to happen for Israel throughout their entire, the rest of the Bible? It's a continuous struggle in the relationship with God and all of the false gods around them. And every once in a while, there's even stories in the New Testament, like when Jesus heals the man at the Bethesda pools. They found, uh, they, they, they found a, right in that spot, a temple to the god Asclepius, who heals by moving water, and that's what the guy wants. And Jesus says, knock it off. 200 yards away is the temple of God, and you're over here worshiping another god, trying to get the other god to heal him. What happens when we feel like God isn't answering our prayer, and people start turning? Because they're looking, they're grasping for anything. So I think this tells us something, not just about Israel, but it tells us something about us, which, of course, that's what we want to be able to get out of the Bible. Okay, so we did last week, we looked at these words for sin, and we spent some time on that in the attributes of God. And what makes these words important, first of all, you notice there's three distinct words, like we kind of have one word for sin. The Bible has many words that convey different aspects of sin or, or different ways that we can sin. So we started with the, the word, there's the word wickedness. And all Hebrew words are based on a verb. Hebrew is action-oriented. And so the verb means to twist, to bend, to distort. And there's an intentionality to it. You told a lie. What's the point of a lie? Is to twist, to bend, to distort reality. You want to get someone to think that reality is different than it is. That's why you lie, because you think you're going to get a benefit. The problem is, when you attempt to re distort reality, reality has a way of coming back and smacking you right in the head. It's uh, chutzpah to think you can distort reality and not get caught up in the ramifications of it. So wickedness is that twisting and perverting what God made good. Uh, rebellion 
Now, rebellion is re rejecting God's authority. So it's a little bit different than twisting and, and bending. It's rebelling. You know God's authority, and you're going to say, I don't care. And I think so many people are just rebelling against an authority figure, like a teenager. They never grew up. And you continue throughout their life rebelling against an authority. And then the last one was just the plain word sin. And that's a Hebrew hata, and it simply means to miss the mark. The soldiers that had the slings were not able to hit the mark. There's a picture of one idea, because the Hebrew mind wants something concrete, is like an arrow. That's the Greek word, too. It's like an, it's, it's a term from archery. You aimed and missed. And all of us do that in life. We walk, we're aiming at something, and we miss. Oops, I got to get up, get back on the path. Or, as we mentioned last week, it can be unintentional. You just didn't even know you walked off the path. And then one day you go, oh my goodness, I'm off the path. God, I'm sorry. I didn't realize I was sinning. And I confess my sin, I get back on the path. So those are the two main images for the Hebrew mind. An arrow, shooting an arrow, and walking a path. Okay, so that was last week. And then what's important, because this is going to come into this week as well, the Hebrew mind, and the mind of the, especially in the ancient world, there is no difference between the act of sin, the act, and the consequence. They're, they're all in one piece. And so you get the words used for sin can also denote the consequence of that sin. In their mind, God created the whole cosmos that when you sin and you distort something over here, it creates the distortion in you as well. So, we mentioned that the Hebrew conception of sin affects the human soul. Again, you twist a lie thinking you got away with it, but you didn't. It twisted now your humanity. And the more you, the more you sin, the, the harder it is for you. You cannot reflect God's image into the world, and the harder it is for you to see straight. We lose touch with what reality is based on too much sin. So it denotes both the act and the consequence. And we'll see tonight, there's a consequence to worshiping a false god. Because you begin to bear the image of the god that you're worshiping. And if you're worshiping our god, the true god, you reflect the image of God like we're supposed to. But if, you bear the, if you're worshiping a false god, you will start to reflect the image of that false god, whatever it is. If you worship money, you'll turn into cold, hard cash. And that's what happens in the world. So we want to worship the God who is merciful and patient and loving and true and forgiving. That's who we want to reflect. So that's an interesting concept, the Hebrew conception of sin. Very helpful, though. Um, okay, so now, what we're going to do tonight, that was all review. We want to look at what does it mean to worship a false god or a false idol? What is a god? What is an idol? And there are a lot of different definitions out there, so I just put down some ideas on your sheet to kind of get you to think about what's a human being actually doing when they're worshiping or we're looking for a, a god or an idol, 
right? So we want to ask that question, what is a god? What is an idol? These are the three questions that we want to ask. Why is humanity always getting in the worship trap? What's the condition of humanity? So one of the things we're going to do today is not just study theology, the, the science of God. We want to study human beings. What does it mean for us? We have to live in God's cosmos. Let's learn about ourselves so we don't fall into the trap. What is it about human beings that we're... We always feel powerless and we're always looking for a power greater than us. So what we want to do finally is raise our self-awareness. If we can raise our self-awareness to the sin of, a, of worshiping an idol, idolatry, then we're able to avoid those traps. You won't, you won't even walk down that path when you see it coming. All right, so number three, what then is, how can we define a God? And what I mean, little g God, not our God, but just any God and or an idol. And I just, I wanted to just put down some, some attributes that human beings throughout time have been looking at. Okay, so first of all, it's an unseen power. We know we live in a world where there's powers, whether it's natural powers or supernatural powers. We know there's powers around us that we can't always see, but we know they're there. And so gods tend to be some unseen power. We know it's there. We perceive always that it's greater than us. Why else would we worship it if it weren't more stronger than us? more powerful than us, right? Human beings are, by our very nature, feel very small. Uh, we have, as we'll see in a minute, many limitations. It's at the point of those limitations that we experience suffering. Well, how many people like to suffer? And it turns out human beings don't like to suffer and will do just about anything to get away from that suffering. So what happens is we feel powerless in a world that seems very chaotic and unpredictable. We always feel out of control, and so we try to put things in place that are going to help us control the chaotic surrounding. Very often, if not always, the God is pictured as something, some power that has the ability to deliver us. From our present circumstances, why would it, when, when things are going well, nobody looks for a God. When things aren't going well, you start looking for a God. You seek a higher power, and very often a false God to try to alleviate whatever's happening, the circumstances. So something that can deliver us from our present circumstances, which is usually suffering. Because suffering is such, it's the commonality for all human beings. And then we kind of have this feeling that you can call on a god to avoid future suffering. To all the gods of the ancient world would be there to be called upon so that you don't suffer. And that could be something like, if it's a, a negative god, I'm going to make sacrifices to appease it so it won't cause suffering. If it's a positive god who can protect me, I'm going to make the sacrifices to appease that god so that it'll protect me. You know, I, th I think we, people do this uh, very often with, uh, like, Mother Earth, right? People kind of have, they envision that there's Mother Earth, and as long as Mother Earth is happy, 
then everything will go okay and she'll feed us and it's benevolent and she'll take care of us. But if we are cantankerous here on Earth and disobey, then Mother Earth is not happy and she punishes us. Um, so Mother Earth could be benevolent, but it could also be, you know, destructive. Okay. And because we live in a concrete world, this is the second one, we often, it's like a, it's like a compulsion. We want to make that God manifest in the natural world. And so a bull will represent a God, a storm, a flood, a sickness, whatever it is, you start to make that into, you, that's the manifestation of it on earth. So a bull is a very common one. In the ancient world, bulls were like the, the regular symbol for a God. And what do we find the Israelites doing? A golden calf. It represents strength. In fact, many scholars see in the, in the ancient world, you would have a god who rode a bull, and the bull shows strength, but the god's on top of it. And so some scholars think that that's what they're doing with the golden calf. They want it to be a calf that God can ride on top of. That's just a thought. Okay, and then um, these gods in the, in the world can be called upon or appeased through the proper worship, and that's just what humanity does. Everywhere you go, you find that. Now, of course, what God wants to do is for you to worship the proper God, right? The, he knows you're going to worship a God. He wants you to worship him instead of the false one, because there's all kinds of problems when you worship a false God. So that's just kind of an idea of what is a God or what is an idol. How do human beings look at that? And you find it, it's ubiquitous within human beings. So we know that if you even if you don't have God, you're going to worship something as a God. Now, one example, and I put this on your sheet, um, that we can see how this is playing out is uh, in the book of Acts, and, and don't turn there, I just want to talk about it, we're not going to read it, there's an example of how far this can go. And one example comes from the Greco-Roman world and the idea of an unknown God. So there they have an altar to an unknown God, just in case we missed one. We don't want to unknowingly uh, upset somebody. And so Paul is in Athens. He's looking around and he says to them, I see you have many altars and you even have one to an unknown God. And it turns out uh, archaeologists have found altars to an unknown God. This right here, what you're looking at on your screen, that's in the city of Pergamum. And Pergamum is one of John's churches in the book of Revelation. John calls it Satan's throne. I know where you live, where Satan has its throne. So that's one question scholars have. Why does he call it Satan's throne? Satan's throne? Well, Pergamum had more temples and altars than any other city in Asia. It had a, a temple and an altar for every god, including one to an unknown god. The archaeologists found one here. Inside this, what you're looking at is the temple to Demeter. And Demeter, well, Demeter is the goddess of groceries, uh, cereal, bread. The Romans called her Ceres, and that's where we get our word for cereal. But inside this temple here, and this is what our guide said it was. Our guide pointed to this altar and said, this is an altar to an unknown god. I don't know if that's the actual one. Sometimes they put out a replica. But anyways, they'll put the actual one in a museum. But anyways, this is what our, our guide said was the one to an unknown god. And they found three of them. 
So around the world, one in Rome, and I'm not exactly sure where the other one was. So we know that this idea was, hey, we don't know. There's, there's so many forces in this world. We better make an altar and worship one, even if we don't know it. And so scholars have a few theories, just for if you're interested in this. One of the theories goes is that there was a plague in Athens, and that's where Paul sees this, a plague that didn't stop. And of course, the Athenians are worshiping all their gods. They're trying to make it stop. They go to an oracle, and the oracle says, it's an unknown god. Build an altar to an unknown god. And then, the, then it stops, and they think, aha, there was a god we don't know about. Some scholars think that it's out of their mythology. They couldn't figure out when there were bad times, so you just hedge your bets. You create an altar. And some scholars even think that this might be a reference to the Jewish god, because there were Jews living all over the, the Greco-Roman world, and the Jewish god had no image. All of the other gods had an image. So theirs is, a, theirs is a god who has no image, and that always puzzled the Greeks. So we don't know for sure, but anyways, I just wanted to give you, the point is, you can see how far human beings will take this. Because, hey, if, 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 the, if we're worshiping all of our gods correctly, and it's not, we're not getting the results, there must be another god out there. Because we're trying to stop our suffering, the plague. So, just to show you the compulsion of the human beings to worship powers when we feel powerless. All right, so number uh, four, and this really has to do with us, right? So, rather than theology, the study of God, we want to look at the human condition, right? What does it mean that a human being has to live in, inside of God's creation? How can we understand what drives human beings when we recognize ourselves? Then we can see how we worship false gods or idols. So I have a little, uh, it's almost like a little mantra that helps me think about this. And um, it's on your sheet. And it goes something like this. So it starts out being, or the fact that we exist, our being itself equals limitation. Now that's, might sound weird at first, but if you give it some thought, right, being equals limitation. Well, if we had zero limitations, we would be just like God. In order to be in the world, we have to have limitations, because the only person who doesn't have any limitations is God. In fact, in Genesis, God says, ah, now that humanity knows good and evil, their eyes have been opened, and they're just like us. And then he says, they must not be able to get to the tree of life, because if they do, they'll live forever. It takes away a limitation. So if, if we were without limit, we'd be, we'd be just like God. So being, the fact that we're here, equals limitation. Well, guess what? Limitation equals suffering. We, we experience suffering wherever we have a limitation. So we suffer because of our limitations. We suffer sickness because our bodies don't function perfectly all the time. We suffer death. That's the, the greatest limitation of all. We suffer loss when we lose loved ones. We suffer physically. We suffer emotionally, spiritually, psycho. I mean, it's, it's like by the time you realize, oh, wait a minute, the whole Bible's written about suffering. You know, it's all people suffering. We follow Jesus, and he suffered. So what do we expect as followers of Jesus? 
but we suffer when we meet our limitations. So therefore, if you take this and to its logical conclusion, you could say being equals suffering. And part of living here with God is to accept the limitations of being. Accept the fact that we suffer. Instead of fighting it, you embrace it. And you, you rely on where, you're, where you end, where your limitation is, you rely on God. Instead of trying to be God like we're unlimited. And this is what so much of the Bible is about. The desire not to suffer. The desire for us to move towards the kingdom of God where suffering no longer exists. Right? How many stories in the Bible are about suffering? How many promises of God are about alleviating suffering? It's everywhere. So if we can just start with that, that the fact that we're a human being, boom, you're going to suffer something. And when we suffer, we want to reach for a higher power. So let me give you one example, because this one is everywhere in the Bible, and it's going to show up in our story of the golden calf. We say we suffer anxiety. Anxiety is all about the future. The future is unknown, though, right? We have an unknown future. It's unclear. It's uncertain. What will happen in the future? What's going to happen with the elections tonight? What's going to happen next week? Is next year? Is there a, going to be a recession? Could there be a war? And so anxiety is bumping into a limitation. It's the limitation of knowing. Oh, there's the constant within human history for the desire to know the future. It's everywhere. Even today, people are consumed with knowing the future. Because the suffering of not knowing produces anxiety, and we want to alleviate that. Ah, there's so many examples, biblical examples, but I think you can see that just in life. People will do, they'll go to great lengths to try to figure out the future or to alleviate, alleviate any kind of suffering in the future because it's unknown. And so, Anxiety itself, and I just want to be clear about the difference between anxiety and fear. So anxiety is nebulous. So when you have anxiety, it's because it's not well-defined, it's not clear, which means you can't act on it today. We don't know what to do yet. We don't have enough information, and so that creates, it's like looking at a cloud of the future which makes you nervous because you're not exact, you, you have nothing to pinpoint. But fear, it, the danger is right in front of you. Like the bear is moving towards you. I know exactly what to do. There's nothing nebulous about that. The train is about to hit you, whatever it is. Um, the moment the bombs start falling in a war, anxiety goes away because now it's no longer nebulous. The bombs are falling. I got to get into, I got to move. And so people start acting. A strange thing. So the, here's the thing, though, about anxiety. Is God eternal? Does God transcend time? Yes, which means God is already in the future. Again, not easy for us to think about, but the more you, the more you can think, ah, oh, God's art today was the future yesterday, and you made it through today. And God met you in today. So God will meet you in the future. And God's working on your behalf 
in the future, you don't even have to know about it. That's why you don't have to worry. That's why Jesus says, why do you worry? Doesn't God feed the birds and everything? And, you know, if you think about the, the story of, like, Joseph, right? Joseph suffers terribly. He has all kinds of unknowing and suffering. He doesn't realize that the whole time God's working out the future. He just took him a roundabout path that included suffering, right? But when he gets to the end, he finally realizes, ah, God was in the future. He met me there. Well, that's why we don't have to worry, but we suffer anxiety. So, but this is what I'm talking about, a limitation that we can all recognize, and it's all over the Bible. But the Bible says, no, 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 here's the solution. Instead of when you suffer anxiety, reaching for a false god, the Bible is going to reveal the one true creator God. And this God can provide salvation today, salvation tomorrow, salvation from whatever your circumstances are. And he also wants to heal us. And he wants you to know that he's a transcendent God, so you don't have to worry. And he wants you to be close to him so that you gain wisdom and you can walk in the world in avoiding unnecessary suffering. So it's, this is the biblical solution. And when we know God, and we understand there's a bigger picture, then what happens is we transcend suffering. God doesn't promise no suffering. God doesn't eliminate suffering. I know many people believe that. He doesn't eliminate suffering. He provides you a path. And the, the way and the power to transcend suffering, that's the story of Jesus. So that you transcend suffering rather than saying, God, why don't you eliminate suffering? So, I mean, you think about the early Christians transcending the suffering. And that's what we're called to do. You get close to God, you transform through the power of the Holy Spirit, and in doing that, you're able to withstand the suffering in a way that you don't fall into the temptation of reaching for a false god. Right? The last thing God wants us to do is to be reaching for that false God to alleviate our suffering. But you can see that's happening all the time. So if we look at this, um, back to our little diagram here, God knows from the beginning that we have limitation. He knows that we suffer. He knows that suffering is going to drive us to search for the most expedient solution, even if it's in the form of an idol or a false God. But that's not God, what God wants us to do. He wants us to worship him and transform into his image. And in doing that, when we, when we do that, we cultivate a deep, meaningful life and that helps us transcend the suffering of the world. Also, obviously, the confidence of knowing, our, you know, we follow uh, Jesus who resurrected, yes, which tells us that there is life after this, this time of suffering. And we know that heaven, there are no tears. There's no suffering. And so we have that to look forward to. So, okay. Now, got to move on. Now we got to say, well, what, well, we've got false gods and we've got false messiahs. So what's the dynamic, right? Well, human beings feel trapped. We feel powerless. We feel hemmed in by our circumstances. And we begin to look upwards, looking up to a power that's greater than us. And when it's not the true God, it's a false God or, a, or an idol. And again, 
It's any power that we believe can deliver us from suffering, past, present, or future. Or any power we believe can transform us in a way that alleviates that suffering. And then you have false gods, you have false idols, but we also have something, same thing, we're hemmed in by our circumstances. We look up to a human being. Uh-oh, a false messiah. Any person who that we place our faith in that we think can deliver us from our circumstances, right? Any person who we perceive as having the power to bring heaven to earth. Now it gets into the human realm. Every ancient king thought of himself as God incarnate in some way, human and divine. Pharaoh was seen as a god who held the balance of chaos and order in his heart. That's why there's so much focus on Pharaoh's heart. When Jesus was born, there was an imposter on the scene called Caesar Augustus. And Augustus Caesar was to be worshipped. The whole creation, the whole cosmos was to worship him. He made wars to cease. The economy never went down. Now, of course, that was good if you're a Roman citizen, but what if you're a slave? Well, sorry. You know, what if you're one of the countries they're conquering? Well, sorry, not you. But you can see there's false messiahs everywhere. It's the human compulsion that when, who can pull me out of my circumstance? Oh, another human being can. No, they can't. You got to go to God, and God can do that. Okay. So, moving from that, then you say, well, the other problem, and this is what God knows about us, number six, is that we conform to what we worship. I mentioned that beginning. So, we could say, look, if I worship God, then what, what image do I conform into? Well, the image of God, and that's what Genesis 1.26 wants us to do. Be in the image of God. That's how we're created. And so, God then says, well, look, if you worship an idol, you're missing it. You're going to turn in to what the idol is, the image of the idol. That's why God doesn't want us to worship idols. He needs us in the fullness of our humanity, reflecting him, not an idol. The worship of an idol distorts humanity. So it distorts our humanity, just like sin distorts us. And what God made for good, human beings, gets distorted, not only through sin, but the worship of a false god. Okay, let's go real quick here to Exodus 32. So all I'm going to do is look at one verse, but now I have to mention this for the video. We don't have time to go into it, but I just want you to know, I put this on your sheet. Israel is not seen as leaving God with the golden calf. I think at first I thought they're turning completely to another god. They're, they're rejecting the god that they just, there is some of that. They're cheating on God, no doubt. But their scholars say it's, they're not completely letting go of God, but they're turning to a false idol. And I just want to make sure if you read a commentary, like Dennis Prager's commentary or uh, Nahum Sarna, they'll talk about this extensively. They're not seen as leaving God. But it's similar, it's very similar to, say, a Christian, a modern Christian, who goes to church all week but worships money or looks or fame or whatever it is. They have something that they're placing between them and God. Um, so I just want to say that for, for the video. We don't have time to go into it, but if you read a commentary, it'll get mentioned. 
So, okay, let's look then. Exodus 32, verse 1. It's just one verse, but this will tell you everything about what's happening. They're about to get anxious, right? Or they're getting anxious. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods, which shall go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us out of uh, the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now, if I did my job right, that little phrase, we do not know, what, what limitation are they bumping into? The limitation of knowledge. And when you bump into the limit, uh, I can't even talk. When you bump into the limitation of knowledge, what's the, the negative emotion that comes out of it? Anxiety. And you want to alleviate anxiety. So what do you do? You look for something that's going to bring, going to alleviate the anxiety. That's the human condition. So just like a parent or a child whose parents go out of sight for too long, anxiety goes through the roof. And look what they want. They want what kind of God shall go before us. They want somebody to lead them into the future. That's what we want God to do. God says, I'm happy to do that. As long as you keep your eyes on me, I can lead you into the future. So I think part of the lesson here of the golden calf, it's just standard human condition. God knows it because what happens in Exodus 34? He forgives them. He knows our, our issues, but he wants us to stay focused on him. And so, part of this lesson tells us that when we have a God who is patient and merciful and kind and in truth and forgiving, that there will be moments that we ourselves will slip into the anxiety got too high, and now we're worshiping modern false gods, not in the traditional sense of having an altar like they did in the, at Pergamum or in, in Athens. But modern false gods are everywhere. And so just to name, I, you know, who knows how many there are. But again, we're all human beings. We're all limited by knowledge, and we feel powerless. And so what we do is we look up. And we're looking for anything that will deliver us. And so power, power describes many of these. They want, people want power, but power itself is a God. To have power over human beings is in itself a God. We can place that in front of God. You go through a whole list, right? There's money. There's beauty and looks, right? We treat people who are beautiful more valuable than we do someone who isn't. Um, money is a way that money gives you power, but it's a way to fend off the chaos, right? If we have enough money, it'll keep the chaos away. Um, we, we worship ourselves, We worship our jobs and our status. We worship science. We put our faith in science where we should be putting our faith in God. You know, science can't, science can tell us things about God's creation, but they can't tell us the most important thing. You know, why should we behave that way? Why do you love your neighbor? How do you acquire meaning in life? Science can't answer those questions. Uh, let's see, cars, what do I got? Comfort, right? We love comfort. 
entertainment is a big one. Pleasure, sex. Uh, we got fame. People worship fame to their own destruction. You have houses. Boy, that's a big one. People worship houses as the thing that's going to save them. Education is another one. Um, it's all over the place. I put healthcare on there, partly because, you know, in the healthcare, I don't mean healthcare is not bad, obviously. We we love, we all love healthcare. But all over the ancient world, there were gods that were healers, and you would worship those gods. That's what was happening with Asclepius and the outside of right outside the temple in Jerusalem. The guy, the guy who's suffering his whole life and can't walk starts to look to another god to heal him, because apparently the God of Israel can't even though he's only 200 yards away in that temple. And that's what Jesus is chastising him, him for. So, okay, then you go to the Messiah piece and you say, well, do we have false messiahs in this world? Yeah. Unfortunately, we have false messiahs everywhere. It's, it's election night. What do politicians claim they're going to do for your future? We're going to fix everything. We're going to stop the ocean's waters from rising. You know, global warming will go away. You'll have whatever you need. You'll never suffer again. Well, is that true? No, it's totally false. So it's just all we've done is now transferred those attributes uh, from, of God onto a human being. Okay, last a little bit. And these, these are on your sheet right next to, uh, it's under number eight. Um, what's God's desire, right? God wants the fullness of humanity. And in order to get that, not only for the individual, but for the collective, in order to get the fullness of a human being, you have to worship the Creator God, because that way you start to conform into His image. That's what God wants. And in, the, in Exodus, it's so that He can dwell, His presence can dwell with His people. That's what God wants to do today. But if you're distorted, if you've, if you've worshipped, worshipped false idols and you diminish your humanity, God's like, I can't deal with that. I need you to focus on me. So God's ultimate desire is for the fullness of humanity. And I think when we look at this, this is just number nine. It's the most common sin, which is why I think Exodus is highlighting it. It's even the most common sin for us today. If we have eyes to see us placing our faith too much in our own skills or money or in houses or in fame, or whatever it is, instead of saying, God, your will be done. You know, and part of, part of not getting caught up in that is understanding the character of God, that he's there, right? He's there to, his desire is for us is to, to fully form into his image, or we would say the image of Christ, because Christ is the image of God in a human form, right? That's what he He's God incarnate. And now we have somebody to say, that's what I'm going to transform into. That's what Paul says. I'm like Jesus. Now you be like me. Transform into the image of your creator. And so we have to keep our eyes on him. So, okay. It's the most common sin. And I think no doubt the reason that they have it, that it's in Exodus here, not only that because it happened, but it, because it shows that it's the first sin that all humanity is going to fall into. The moment you think God's gone, where's God in the moment? And you start seeking out something that's not God. So, okay, that I think, well, you'll be the judge. 
is at least one of the lessons that comes out of the golden calf, a very important story, of course. But you can see how then that leads to where God's going to show his character and say, yeah, I'll even forgive that. Now, let's get on with it. Start transforming so my presence can come dwell with you.